Matthew chapter number five. Matthew chapter number five today as we continue through our study through the book of Matthew. And today specifically, um, we are continuing in what we call, thank you, Roy, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is one of Jesus' best known uh, teaching portions throughout all of the Bible. And here in the book of Matthew chapter number five, we began a couple of weeks ago, jumping into uh, the first few verses, what are commonly known as the Beatitudes. And then uh, this week, this week we are, uh, or last week, I'm sorry, we continue. We talked about one of the most, one of the most known metaphors in all of the Bible, the salts and light metaphors that Jesus gives. And then today we're going to continue just in the next few verses. And so um, if you remember last week, um, we studied about uh, four verses and today we're going to study about four verses again. And um, hopefully you guys remember what that means about the length of the message. Absolutely nothing. So Four verses. There's lots to cover in these four verses. That's why um, we're just breaking these down, not trying to bite off more than we can chew. But really what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the better righteousness, the better righteousness. Now let's begin by reading the first uh, couple of verses here. And then I want to kind of introduce to you what Jesus is trying to accomplish and what he's trying to communicate to his audience. And so watch what he says here in verse number 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So to, in order to know a little bit about what's taking place here, just by way of introduction, is the law and the prophets he's referring to are what we would call today the Old Testament scriptures. Um, so uh, the first 39 books of the Bible. And as he comes and as he speaks, Jesus here is speaking um, between three and four hundred years after the final book of the Old Testament was written. And so as he gets up and as he speaks, he's beginning to speak things and teach things that to some of the Jews sounded like a departure from the Old Testament scriptures, from the law and the prophets. And immediately Jesus gets up and he says, hey, listen, in this first discourse that he gives, I'm not coming to destroy that, to remove it, but I'm coming to fulfill it. And so what Jesus is doing is giving us a picture of what he is in relation to the law. So maybe we could say it this way. Jesus did not come to replace the law, but he came to put it in the right perspective. He did not come to replace the law, but he came to put it in the right perspective. And so this is not about how Jesus relates to the law, but rather how the law relates to Jesus. One of the uh, best pieces of advice that I could give you for studying your Bible is to be sure to study, if you're studying in the New Testament of your Bible, study how it relates to the Old Testament. If you're studying the Old Testament of your Bible, study how it relates to the New Testament. Because the Bible teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration, but also um, that the Scripture, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so as we read and as we study the Bible, we don't take just a piece of it and let it stand on an island by itself, but we bolster it and build it up, and we come to understand it more fully by studying its relation to other parts of the Bible. And so here, Jesus, as he is speaking, he's saying, listen, 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 the law is, I didn't come to destroy the law. Instead, what word does he use? I came to fulfill it, to fulfill it. And so as he is speaking, he's speaking of fulfillment. Um, now, what is fulfillment? 
Fulfillment is, uh, it's the keeping of a promise. This is Jesus coming and saying, the law and the prophets promised something that was to come. I am that promise. And so he comes in and says, this is how I relate. This is how the law relates to the things that you are seeing. Uh, But he's not done there. Watch what he says. Look at verse number 18. For truly, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so he goes into something that's very important here. And uh, Jesus, what are the first words he says? Uh, he says, he introduces this with truly, um, or some translations might say, I tell you the truth. Um, now, for you and for me, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, I'm telling you the truth, what does that make you think? What? You're like, oh, wait a second. Um, Excuse me? Now you're telling the truth. Okay, great. (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Um, You know, my kids do that to me sometimes, the older ones. um, You know, they're kids. They're four and five. And so there's some reason to um, mistrust what they're saying. And they'll come and be like, Dad, I'm telling the truth. I'm like, are you? One of the things that we know about Jesus is that Jesus told the truth, right? So is that what he's saying here? Is he saying, guys, I'm not lying this time. Is that what's taking place? Is that what he's? No. So then why does he emphasize that what he's telling is true? Because he's trying to make a point. He's saying this for our understanding, for us to look at and say, okay, he really wants us. We should pay attention to all of that. He really wants us to pay attention to the words that he is speaking here. And what words? So what words? Is he speaking? So he says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, and so let me, let me ask you guys this question. How many of you guys have ever seen heaven and earth pass away? No one? No? How many of you have ever seen the world, you know, come to an end and be, no, right? Like, what a weird question. None of us have witnessed that. Jesus here comes and he gives another illustration of some of the most predictable things that take place in the world. When we wake up, the earth is going to be here, the heavens and the earth, right? This, uh, it's all going to exist. We don't put our heads on the pillow at night thinking that the next day we're going to wake up dead. We hate it when that happens, right? That's not what we're expecting. The world continues to exist. Something that is greater than us, something that you and I cannot even put a stop to if we wanted to. And then what does he compare that to? He says, as quickly as that will pass away, even more sturdy, even more reliable is the word of God. In fact, he says, not a, uh, not a dot or an iota. Um, some translations give us a jot or a tittle. What these are is these are all words referring to a little bit different languages. So it's kind of rendering it just a touch different. But, but here's, here's the gist of it. Um, in English, we have um, a letter called an I that has a dot on the top of it. All right. Everyone familiar with that? Okay, good. And then we have the T. The T has the cross coming around it. So could you imagine um, if someone were writing and just missed a dot, forgot to dot an I or cross a T? Happened to anybody in here ever? Not you guys, of course. Um, well, uh, Yoda and a, and a dot, um, what many people believe these are is kind of similar to that. Just little um, markings on the letters that make up the Hebrew alphabet that, can, that the law consists of. 
uh, very small, very minute. Um, and if you read Hebrew or study Hebrew, a lot of the letters look alike, and they're only discerned by these little tiny dots. And Jesus is saying that the trustworthiness of the law is such that even those will not pass away before the heavens and the earth. So what is he trying to impress on us? What is he trying to get his hearers to understand? What he is trying to communicate is this. The word of God is worthy of our trust. The word of God is worthy of our trust. You see, uh, the Bible, the way that we even got our Bible today, we don't have the time to go into all of the history. But this Bible that you and I are sitting in here reading in English um, was originally written in three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, and then some portions written in a language called Aramaic. All three of these uh, languages were in different cultures, different periods of time, different uh, parts of the world. But most of the Bible, all of the Bible that we have, was originally written in these languages. And it was written not by one person sitting down like we would write a book today. But the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible teaches us, took and moved and uh, worked through men and women. And this word of God was written. You see, this word of God was not written in one uh, lifetime. In fact, it was written a period, over a period of thousands of years across cultures, across empires, across geographic regions, including three different continents. What we find is we find this Bible, the way that it came together was a miracle in and of itself. And really what we see is that throughout the Bible, really the great miracle of all of this is that through the Bible, through these almost 40 different authors, three different languages, thousands of years in different spaces and different times, we find that this Bible communicates one message. One message. Now, if you and I were to sit down and talk about writing a story and we were to start penning words, um, we would have disagreements even within ourselves, right? And we all speak English, um, most of us, um, some I know are guests and visiting with us, but most of us live in Southeast Michigan. Um, we have a lot of things in common, and yet we would find conflicts and disagreements. And yet the Bible presents to us a beautifully unified story. And even the fact that we still have the Bible today after thousands of years is a testament to the preservation that God has allowed the scriptures to have. You see, just as uh, Jesus, he was speaking of these things, the heavens and the earth, and no one, we can't go destroy the heaven and earth, right? Um, could you imagine uh, your neighbor, um, you're talking to them one day, and they're just, maybe you have that neighbor that's just really grouchy and gruff and mean, and you say, hey, what are you up to today? And he says, I'm fighting the sky. You'd be like, all right, time to call someone in. <laughs> he needs help. Because we can't do anything about the sky, about the heavens or the earth. We can't destroy those things. It's not within our grasp. And yet throughout history, there have been uh, those who have tried to wage war against the word of God and tried to destroy and try to tear it down and try to argue against it. And yet over and over and over again, the word of God still stands. The truth of the gospel still goes forward. And so we have to understand that the word of God is worthy of our trust. If we don't have a word of God that we can depend on, then the gospel and the message and the truth of it that we have are laid on a foundation that cannot be trusted. But thankfully, we can trust the word of God. And so here we see that Jesus lifts up the word of God and he values the law and the word because there is a purpose within the law and within the word. And so watch what he says next. 
He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so what is he saying? He's saying this law, these commandments, the Old Testament law, these aren't things that have come just to end. These aren't things that are just to be ignored. These aren't things that are supposed to be pushed to a corner, but these are things that still have value. One that comes and teaches this law is unimportant. This law doesn't matter. This law is irrelevant. What does he say of them? He says, these will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone want that title? No? Okay. He comes in and he says, the law matters. There is still value in this. But what does he continue to say? And he continues, he goes to the opposite side of this. He says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here, what he begins to do is he begins to go into the purpose of the word. The purpose of the word. Watch in verse number 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what does this have to do altogether? What is the cohesive thought that's taking place here in these four verses? Uh, Well, part of our key for understanding comes here at the very end. He speaks of this righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees In the book of Matthew, this is one of the first times that we see the Pharisees mentioned. But throughout the whole book, the Pharisees are this group of people that are setting themselves up as the opponents of Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about these Pharisees. Um, These Pharisees prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. Um, Now, when we talk about the law, one way that we kind of break the law down, the law of um, the Old Testament, is through what we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. How many of you guys know what the Ten Commandments are? You've heard of that before, at least, okay? Does anyone here know all ten of the Ten Commandments? Does anyone know, uh, does anyone know one of the Ten Commandments? What are the Ten Commandments? What's, what's one of them? Thou shalt not murmur in church, but answer loud and clear, so the preacher can hear you. That's commandment number 11. It was on the third tablet. Long story. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, okay? Excellent. So that's the first commandment, right? Um, That's the first commandment. Uh, What else? What's another commandment? All right, no graven images. All right. Um, We could... Honor thy father and mother. um, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Really, we see that these are divided into two primary categories of loving God, loving others. Um, And they all fall under this. You have thou shalt not steal, bear false witness, commit adultery, covet... Um, you have uh, keep the Sabbath day and not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, am I missing one altogether? All right, that's pretty, we're pretty close, right? Um, and so we have these 10 commandments, right? Um, now, who among us has kept all 10 of these commandments? All right. No hands are going up. Uh, most of us don't know all 10 of these commandments. So it's, you know, let's just take a minute, be honest with ourselves and each other. All right, hopefully uh, most of us have kept, you know, thou shalt not kill. That's a good one. We all like that one. Uh, but when it comes to uh, bearing false witness, telling lies, that's another, that's another story. Um, taking the Lord's name in vain or meaning um, not necessarily just what we think of using God's name as a swear, but um, using God's name and invoking God in a situation that he is nothing to do with. Um, or uh, remembering the Sabbath day uh, to keep it holy. 
Um, I think all of us struggle with thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's easy to say, I don't worship other gods. And then we begin to put our priorities out of line and we find our actions disagreeing with our uh, intents. And so what happens? So it's, I think it's safe for all of us to say that the Ten Commandments, um, we're all struggling with these. Did you know that in the Old Testament law, there are not just Ten Commandments, um, but there are a few more than that. Does anyone know how many laws are in the Old Testament? Dan, you're not allowed to answer. All right. How many? 620 laws. All right. My count was 613. Um, all right. But we're right around that same ballpark, right? Over 600 laws that made up the Old Testament. Does anyone want to guess um, on if they've kept all of those laws? If anyone in here has kept all of those laws, I will gladly have a seat. And you can come up here because I have not. The purpose of the law is not in the keeping of all of the laws, but the Pharisees didn't quite understand that. In fact, the Pharisees, so you and I, we would look at 613. I'm going to say 613. If someone wants to go through and fact check that, um, count them all one by one. You are welcome to. Let me know what you come up with. Um, So let's say 613 laws. And of these laws that existed in the Old Testament, um, the Pharisees, let me start before I even go to the Pharisees. You and I would say that's a lot of laws, right? That's a lot of rules to keep. If I said, hey, guys, here is the handbook for being a member at Heritage Baptist Church, and it had 613 laws, I think all of us would be like, all right, see you later. That's a lot of laws. But what do we find? Um, The Pharisees didn't think like you and I do. You and I think like, oh, that's a lot of laws. The Pharisees were like, you know what? Wouldn't it be so much better if we had not just hundreds of laws, but thousands of them? And so the Pharisees began to expound on the law because 613 aren't enough for some people. And so now that great degree of law has become thousands of laws. He said, well, why would they even go and do that? Um, here's, kind of what's, here's kind of what's happening. Um, hey, Michael, you up for helping me? Come on, buddy. Come on up here. Come on up here. Say hi to Michael, everybody. Hi, Michael. Let's give him a hand. Yeah, thanks for coming. Played the guitar this morning, did a great job. All right. All right, Michael. Um, I'm going to be a Pharisee, and you're going to be Michael, okay? Can you remember that? All right. (laughs) And what we're going to do is we're going to play a little game um, right here at the edge of this platform. um, We're going to call that sin. So we don't want you to step into sin. So when you go across that, you are violating the law, okay? going to push you? Wow. Wow. That wasn't, that hadn't even crossed my mind until you said that. <laughs> what some people think of me. Tim, what are you telling your kid? <laughs> All right. So this is sin. I, and contrary to what you're thinking, I don't want you to fall into sin. All right. Um, I'm more tempted now than I was, um, but I don't want that for you. In fact, um, let, me, let me just get everybody else involved here. Right now, is Michael in sin? Are we sure? What the Pharisees would do now is the Pharisees would say, hey, Michael, I know you're not in sin, but you're pretty close to it. So just to be safe, why don't we step back here? And they would take where God had made a law, they would take and they would make another law and say, don't, don't cross this law, Okay. And then as time would go on, they would say, oh, you know what? You're still looking kind of close to breaking the law. So why don't we just take another step 
back here, and they would make another law. And so now they are removing and they're adding these laws to God's. Now, was Michael in sin in the front? Was there ever a point where he had crossed into sin here with the, no, he never stepped into it in this moment, in this illustration, right? But they begin to build these things and build these things. And listen, uh, if you have a personal conviction that says, hey, I don't want to get close to, praise God for that. But the Pharisees weren't safe and settled with saying, I desire to not. Instead, they imposed this on everybody else. And now, Michael, you have to make me happy because now I have made this law that you cannot cross. And so when an individual would break, not one of God's laws, but one of the Pharisees' laws, the Pharisees would respond and they would say, what are you doing? How dare you? What is wrong with you? You have violated one of the laws of God because they had added these things to the scripture. And the Pharisees prided themselves by being able to stand as far away as possible and say, look at me, I am holy because I am nowhere near that by setting up all of these uh, guards and these guides and these extra laws that they then would memorize and do their best to fulfill and to keep so that they could appear holier than the next person. And so anytime someone would violate not just the laws of God, but their own laws, they would begin to cry foul. They would begin to go and to elevate and say, listen, that person is a sinner. Even at times when they had not crossed over into what was actually sin. Thank you, Michael. Wasn't too bad, was it? I was going to push him. Um, I'm just kidding. But what we find is here, these Pharisees would do their best and they would add to these laws. So for example, for example, I'll give you one here. Um, one of the, one of the, actually the 10 commandments, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And so God said, do not do work on the Sabbath day. And now uh, for you and I, hopefully we would say, okay, I'm not going to do work on the Sabbath day. And I will do my best to follow the law that God has laid before us. The Pharisees said, hold on a second, like typical lawyers, right? Hold on a second. What is work? Um, when is the Sabbath day start and end? How do we, and they began to say, it's not just enough that God has said this, but we really need to figure out what work is and what takes place on uh, when the Sabbath day is so that we can know whether or not we are breaking God's laws. And the thing that's really interesting about the Pharisees is the Pharisees decided they had to be loud where God was quiet. They came out and they said, we have to blast this on high when God didn't say anything about it. And so they prided themselves on their own righteousness. But this is how the Pharisees operated. Um, and in fact, there was a, um, when they discussed the Sabbath day, um, they created categories. Um, and so when it came to work, they created 39 categories of what defined work. So it's not enough to say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. No, we have to know what is working. And here are 39 categories, each of them with their own subcategories of what work is. And so they would ask questions like, how many steps can be taken on the Sabbath day? How far can one travel from home on the Sabbath day? What is home? And I'm not kidding you. And so they came to the agreement that home is where my uh, personal items are, where my things are. And they could only travel a Sabbath day's journey from home. And so what the Pharisees would actually do is they would say, my, uh, my things, my personal effects uh, are, that makes it home. Home is where, wherever I'm staying, wherever my things are. 
And so they would say, I can only travel a Sabbath day's journey from my home. But what they would do if they had to travel on the Sabbath, um, it would take a little planning. Not they couldn't do it, but they had to figure out their own little loopholes. And so what would happen is they would actually take, they decided that a toothbrush is a good measure of where someone lives. And so they would uh, take toothbrushes and have merchants that were traveling a trail. They need something to go along and lay those toothbrushes at certain intervals because now that is their home. And so they would go from home to home to home and complete this journey, even though they're called to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But now in their minds, they have not violated the Sabbath day's law because law is uh, work and work is traveling so far from your home. And if each of those are where I live, then I mean, you know what? God can't really find fault in me. So this is the righteousness of the Pharisees. But what we also see is that uh, they're not ashamed of their devotion to God. But the problems are that they love the deep things of the law and yet They miss the forest for the trees. They love the law. They love the details and the nitty gritty and going off into the weeds and setting all of these things. And yet they miss the one that the whole law was about. And so they prided themselves in their own righteousness. They would even go so far as to tithe, give a tenth of all of their spices not only their income from their uh, work, not only other income, not only like off of retirement, or if, so, if they were given, if you gave a Pharisee some spice, they would go measure a tenth of that spice and bring it to the temple as part of their offering. That's how meticulous they were of their keeping of the law. And they desired to convert others into their own sect of Judaism. And so the purpose of the law to Jesus was right in front of them, but they missed it. They did all of the things, but they missed it entirely. But the word of God shows us what true righteousness is and isn't. The word of God shows us what true righteousness is and isn't. Because here, Jesus is demonstrating, he's saying, follow after true righteousness. If your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And so he says that this true righteousness, he's defining this true righteousness, what it is and what it isn't. Think of the righteousness of the Pharisees. Which of us could exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? The Pharisees committed their lives to being righteous. They studied the law. They had a knowledge and an understanding of the word of God. And yet that righteousness was not enough to bring them to God. They did all of the things. They checked all of the boxes. In their minds, they kept the law to a T. They did all of the things necessary. But the fact is, even in the middle of this, their righteousness was dependent on their ability to keep the law. Their righteousness was dependent on their ability to keep the law. And you know what the Bible tells us? That anything that's not of faith is sin. The Pharisees, their faith in God went as far as they were able to obey and to follow after. And so they were all about looking good and presenting themselves and obeying the law and following after the law. But what they missed out on is the fact that they could never, can never cleanse themselves from the sin that's inside of them. You see, no amount of good works, no amount of following after the law undoes those times that we've broken it. 
No amount of attempting to do good undoes the violations that we have of the law of God. We are sinful and we are separated from God and condemned because of it. And there's no action, there's no goodness, there's nothing that you and I can do to change that. Let me give you one more illustration before we wrap up today. Dan, can I pester you? Can I bother? This is Dan. Dan, would you come up here? I'm not going to pick on Michael twice. Um, you're welcome. Um, Dan's a friend of our ministry. Dan is a, um, he's a, an associate pastor at a church um, down river, Calvary and Southgate. Come with me up here, Dan. And uh, Dan has uh, been, been a friend of mine, a friend of our church for, for a while. Um, now, when it comes to, don't peek. It's a secret. Um, when it comes to things, um, there are certain things. Dan, Dan, you consider yourself a clean person, right? Um, sure. Wow. <laughs> Not as confident as I was hoping for. <laughs> Dan's, a, Dan's a clean guy, all right? I've never uh, been around Dan and been like, wow, this guy is unclean, right? Um, <laughs> Dan, uh, you know, I, how many of you guys you say, I'm a clean person? I like to think of myself as a clean person, right? Most of us, okay? Um, of the things that are clean in your house, um, what are the things that you want clean like the most? Anything? Everyone, someone feels like all of it. 100%. Refrigerator. All right, that's a good thing to keep clean, right? Uh, what were we just talking? What, what, what illustration would you use with the Pharisees? We said the toothbrush, right? Um, you never notice that if someone comes over to your house and um, they want to, um, and they're staying the night with you, you give them a towel, right? Um, and you'll give them a washcloth and you give them certain things to be able to clean up with. Um, did anyone ever say, hey, you can just borrow my toothbrush? No, right? No. Like, you come over, stay at my home. Um, I will give you a towel. We'll give you those things. If you need to clean up, we'll, I mean, we'll make sure you have, we'll make sure you're covered. Um, if you say, hey, Nate, can I borrow your toothbrush? Um, I might say yes, but I'm never using it again. <laughs> I'm going to go buy, I'll be like, yeah, that's fine. I'm going to go buy a new one right now anyways. Um, that's not something we do. Um, and so, uh, Dan, I have, I have a gift for you. Um, you can lie if you need to. Did you brush your teeth? This, okay. All right. Dan, I got this for you. Everyone see this okay? It's a, this is a brand new toothbrush. It's never been used. Um, this morning, I got some uh, leaves because it's fall. It was before the snow was on the ground, so there's no snow in here. Um, some dirt and, uh, and a toothbrush. This, I promise you, I bought this toothbrush like Wednesday or Thursday. I don't remember. The week runs together. Wednesday or Thursday. Paid a whole dollar for it at Meyer. It's Oral-B. Dan, would you mind brushing your teeth with? <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. I was not going to let you. All right. <laughs> none of us want to. None of us want to put that in our mouths, right? It's filthy. It's disgusting. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to. I'm going to take a moment here, and Dan, I'm going to hand this. I'm going to hand this to you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just. I appreciate. You're welcome. I consider it my gift to you. All right. Here you can hold this in your other hand. Um, but it's a bag of dirt. It's very, very difficult to find. It's a bag with dirt in it. Um, so what we have here is we have a dirty toothbrush and we have a bag of dirt. Now, as we look at the law, the law points out to us that we are sinners. Now, uh, here's one thing I want to make sure that we clarify. Our sin does not just come from the outside and it's not just the things that we do, but that sin, we are born in sin. Meaning the things that we do are what flow out of the inside of our hearts. 
There is not one, uh, we'll get to details there, but not one of us that has been born without that sin inside of us. We go all the way back to Genesis 3. We find that Adam sinned, and that sin was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And we are incapable of cleaning ourselves or ridding ourselves of this sin. In fact, um, Isaiah, Isaiah says this. He says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So imagine the picture. You're muddy, you're dirty, and then you say, hey, Nate, can I get something to clean up? And I handed you just a grimy towel that I drug out of the dirt just minutes earlier. Here you go. Are you getting any cleaner from this? No. Your righteousness and my righteousness cannot cleanse, cannot purify, cannot make holy or make righteous. And so the whole time that the Pharisees are going about trying to make themselves look righteous and make themselves look good, you know what they're doing, Dan? They're taking that toothbrush. They're sticking it right back in there. They're stirring it all around because that's their own righteousness trying to come out. They're trying to make themselves clean. And what are they doing trying to make themselves clean? They're making themselves dirtier and dirtier and dirtier because our goodness is no goodness at all. We are separated from God. Our sin brings us condemnation. And so when Jesus here speaks of the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, it's actually not as difficult as some hearing it would perceive because their righteousness is no righteousness at all. So what is righteousness? Well, when I said there was never one that came, there was technically one who came, who never sinned. Jesus said, I do always the things that please the Father in the book of John. We studied a few weeks ago from Matthew chapter number four, how Satan led Jesus out into the wilderness and tempted him and tempted him and tempted him. And over and over and over again, Jesus rebuffed and pushed back Satan and he perfected, fulfilled never gave in to this temptation. In fact, Paul would later write and he would record and say that Jesus, he was tempted in all points like we are. Every area that you and I have faced temptation, Jesus faced that temptation too. Yet he was without sin. And so his whole life, no sin. And yet what happens? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter number six, that the wages of or the penalty of our sin is death. But Jesus never sinned. So where did Jesus begin to deserve death? He didn't. He doesn't. And yet, we know the story. He went to the cross. He was crucified. He died, gave up his life, even though he did not deserve that. You know who deserved that death? I did. You did. All of us. Our sin has brought us to this place. So why did Jesus do it? Well, he did it for you. He did it for me. Because you see that Jesus, he came and there was no sin in him. See, I told you about it the other day, about two of them. And Jesus said, hey, my righteousness is real righteousness. My righteousness is true righteousness. My righteousness has never been uh, soiled or dirtied or made filthy by sin. There was no sin at all in him ever. And yet he came and he said, hey, Dan, let me uh, take that from you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this, and I'm going to give you my righteousness, my cleanliness, my, my pureness. 
And so the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees is not a righteousness that comes by trying to clean ourselves up in our own mess. The righteousness of, that exceeds that of the Pharisees is a righteousness that you cannot achieve on your own. It's a righteousness that God looked down and God said, I am going to give it to you through my son, Jesus Christ. Dan, you can keep the toothbrush. <laughs> you see, the righteousness that Jesus is preaching of is not a righteousness that you and I, we can't just change the law so that we can keep it. That's not how it works. We can't manipulate it so now the law meets the standards that we want it to be able to meet. That is not our decision to make. It is not a majority vote. It is not a contest. There is nothing that, there's not a democracy here. But the law is the law, and you and I cannot keep it. But Jesus, he can, he could, and he did. And he died for you and for me. And the essence of the gospel is Jesus in my place. That sin and that death that I deserve to die, Jesus paid it for me. So for me, it's a matter of accepting that gift, that transaction. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to look at the law and say, wow, I can keep all of these points because I can't. Paul, in the book of Galatians, he called the law this. He said, it's our schoolmaster or it's our teacher to bring us to Christ. When we look at the law, we say, I can't measure up and I can't be good enough for it. But Jesus was, my faith in him gives a divine transaction. My right, his righteousness for mine, which is no righteousness at all. And you see, as the word of God shows us what true righteousness is and isn't, true righteousness is only found in Jesus. You see, we're separated from God. We can't reconcile ourselves to him. We can't be so good that now he accepts us. That gulf is too wide. Uh, Paul writes in the book of Romans that we are enemies of God. We're at odds with him. We cannot make peace on our own, but there was one peacemaker whose name was Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and men. And so as we're sitting in here today, there are all kinds of people. We have different backgrounds from different areas. Uh, as we sit in here today, here's my challenge for you. There are those of us that we've placed our faith in Jesus. That transaction has taken place. We call that being saved. I've been saved from that sin and from the condemnation and that separation from God that my sin deserves. And then there are those of us maybe who haven't made that decision before. Where we're trying to be good. We're trying to do the good things. We're trying to do the church thing. And we're trying to read our Bibles. And we're trying to... Ah, and we're, listen, all of those things that we are doing, it's not going to save us. It doesn't undo our sin. The fact is, is that we can't undo. But we can take a righteousness that has been given and offered to us. Because your righteousness, I don't care how good you are. I think all of us would say, we're good people. I don't care how good you are. That goodness can never get you to God. Because our sin separates us from him. But Jesus. So if you're in here today, and that's you maybe. You're wrestling with that. Uh, you've heard the word of God communicated. And you've heard about our righteousness and how it measures up or doesn't to God. Let me encourage you. 
as a believer in Christ. Maybe you've been around churches and you placed your faith in Christ decades ago. Can I just say this to you as clearly and as strongly as possible? We don't outgrow the gospel. We don't get so much head knowledge now that the gospel just is this thing that we leave behind. We grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find ways that it applies to our lives and helps us to grow within it. And for those in here today who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, you've never exchanged that sinfulness of yours for his righteousness, you could do that today. 